Welcome to the Alan and Ovary broadcast. Just to introduce myself, I'm Sally Dewar, the CEO of ANO Consulting. I've worked in financial services for 25 years, both as a financial services regulator and at a large multinational um, banking institution. And I'm joined today by Paolo bergamaschi Broid, who has 30 years' experience in capital markets in the City of London. She's covered senior management positions at Goldman Sachs, Credit Suisse and State Street, covering different geographies and with P&L responsibility. Since 2014, Paola has developed a portfolio of non-executive positions, both at FTSE 250 companies and on private boards. And I'm delighted to have her here with me today to talk about thoughts on strategic opportunities and challenges facing banks in the near and medium term. So Paola, a very warm welcome. And if we can get straight into it, if that's okay, let's talk a bit about culture first and whether culture is, um, organizational culture is a strategic challenge for banks today. Uh, Yes, Sally, I think uh, it is. Um, I don't think we can forget that a lot of the cultural change that happened in our financial organizations over the past 15 years has been really driven by regulation. I think following the big financial crisis, we all have witnessed a wave of um, regulation that really went at the heart of governance, transparency, uh, remuneration, a whole framework that makes uh, and and shapes the the culture of of an organization. So I think the regulatory trigger has been vital. There is no doubt that in 15 years, by all means, all these new frameworks and behaviors have been embedding uh, into a proper, if you want, like, spontaneous culture. But I think the pressure has to stay on because the risk is that uh, management and executives uh, might be tempted to revert back to the mean. So I think I think it's good that, um, that the regulator continue to maintain uh, a very active role in uh, shaping. Yeah, and, and, and obviously that's further compounded with the events of the last two years, um, COVID, the emergence of remote working, and now a new world of of hybrid working. So what more should boards and senior management be doing to set this clear tone from the top regarding culture? You know, I I think, first of all, if I may, I think tone from the top is is a necessary condition, but it's not sufficient. I mean, I think we need to have both tone from the top, but also uh, the leading by example part of the equation. So I think communication has been uh, recognized to be vital all throughout the COVID period, uh, being able to maintain uh, the channels open uh, in terms of formal and informal communication has been uh, tested to the limit and very useful. So exco. Uh, and very senior management lines had to continue to stay uh, in front of, literally in front of their teams to, to, to communicate and give the tone from the top. Having said that, uh, leading by example is, is, in my view, essential. Uh, I think, uh, you know, both the boards and the executive committee members have day in, day out to, to be uh, honest and keep themselves honest and keep each other honest, 
by by continuously you know challenge strategic their strategic decisions their governance structures the system of incentives so i think it's the day-to-day behavior also it's it's essential in terms of sorry if i may just add one point i mean in terms of something that really helped here i think is the introduction of the senior management regime, you know, the SMCR in this country. Uh, because in the US, there was already a shift towards more accountability uh, at the top. Uh, but with the introduction of the SMCR, that has become very, very important and at the core of our governance structure also in this, in this market. And it has um, increased the pressure of leading by example and uh, and tone from the top. So it has been a very helpful uh, initiative. Um, and and it's, it's interesting when you talk about um, culture and governance, because these are very broad topics. And oftentimes people don't really understand exactly what that means in practice. So can you talk a bit about the areas of culture and governance that the banks should be prioritizing. Yeah, sometimes people associate these concepts with very soft uh, targets or very amorphous concepts. I think there are very, very practical frameworks that, that can be used. For example, you know, human beings tend to be very rational most of the times. And so, and so to work on the system of incentives is essential. So remuneration structures are a very, very useful tool to set, um, to set the right incentives for top management. Working with the regulator in designing these remuneration structures is very important. So being, for example, the chair of a Remco, it's a great experience uh, and it's a great opportunity to do the right thing to, to shape governance. Another, um, another thing that a tool that practically I think is very effective is to introduce uh, very serious and rigorous 360 um, performance assessments. Uh, I know that in the US we used to use it, you know, 15, 20 years ago already, but uh, it was seldom used here. Now it is becoming more popular. They are essential because as a as a director, as a, as a manager, you get reviewed by your seniors, your juniors, your peers. So you are really, um, you know, in front of the camera, so to speak, and having feedback uh, from the rest of all the st- stakeholders around you, which, which I think is very important. But and last, I mean, I think you know better than anyone else, you know, talent selection. It's, uh, it's an essential component, um, and uh, it is very, very important that we all uh, select the right talent that in 10 years is going to run our banks. So the juniors that are coming in now are going to be the decision makers and the leaders. Uh, we need to be smart in selecting them. So selection process uh, and nomination committee plays a, a, a big role here. And, and, and just... Building on that that theme around talent and also linked to culture, there's an awful lot of of noise, rightly so, about um, firms becoming more diverse, more inclusive, both at the board level and at the senior executive level, and how that trickles down through the organisation and the way the organisation defines its people strategy. 
So how well are banks doing today to make their organizations more diverse and inclusive? Uh, if we were on video, you would see me smiling. I think, <laughs> I think over the past 30 years, there is no doubt that um, gender diversity has improved. Um, again, I, I, I might sound like a broken record, but again, the regulator has played a role by, you know, setting the first the 30% target. Now we're talking about 38, wherever it's going to be, there is a push also, uh, not only a pull. Uh, so gender um, representation at the leadership level uh, has been, has become, you know, diverse, more diverse from a gender standpoint. I mean, the, the only thing, if I may say, if, if we want to look at the glasses half empty, is that the positions of leaderships that have been uh, achieved by uh, most uh, female uh, professionals are more for horizontal functions in my experience. So they tend to, we tend to have loads of uh, super um, good and leaders in the risk area, compliance area, HR, um, treasury, PR, investor relations, we still don't have enough uh, leaders at the top of businesses. So it looks like the PNL is the ultimate threshold that we need to work on to achieve genuine diversity at the very top. And so there is still work to do. That's what I'm trying to say. I mean, it has improved, but there is still work to do. And then let, let, let's, let's look at other diversity dimensions. I mean, ethnic, uh, cultural, background diversity. Again, um, we are also restricted by, by the pool of talent that we can, we can address. So I think we need to work a lot with the educational institutions and, uh, and allow them to help us. Yeah. And so, so as you say, diversity, very importantly, is about gender, is about um, ethnic minorities. It's also about culture, background, diversity of skills and expertise. So can you talk a bit about how boards are thinking about this or should be thinking about this from that broadest diversity definition? Um, I, I think the broader diversity is, is something that is somehow hindered by the lack of fantasy and creativity of our headhunters. Um, we cannot forget that, you know, advisors in this field are very important. They've always been very important. They, they have the, the pulse on the market. But when we look for uh, new hires, we still get lists that are not diverse enough. Um, so I think we should uh, exercise as much pressure as we can on as many headhunting firms as we can reach to uh, force them to work harder and, and, and do their job better and help us uh, increase uh, diversity. Uh, so I think that that is definitely... Um, something that w would help boards do a better job at being more diverse in, in senior hires and directors level. I mean, it, it, and also in terms of diversity, you know, governance again is very, very important. And we, you need boards that, are, that have diverse thinking. And that's why I think that sometimes U.S. boards are 
somewhat limited in their diversity because in that culture you have the chair, the CEO, the president being only one person. Uh, so the same individual collects all this power and inevitably being a human being, very often they create the board in their image. And so at that point, you, you have eliminated diversity at the outset. So again, governance helps. So, so for you then, what, what makes you feel when you walk into a boardroom that um, a particular board that you sit on is diverse in all its guises? I think you know, uh, you know a board is going to be diverse when you meet for lunch or coffee, uh, their chair, the chairman or the CEO or both. Uh, I think you, you, you recognize it when you see it because usually it's driven by um, the openness, the mental openness of, of the leader, of the chair or of the CEO, the, their level of curiosity, their availability to be tested and challenged and their curiosity in knowing what you think that is different from what they have heard. And those kind of behaviors usually are incredibly strong um, indicators of how diverse the board is going to be. So, so maybe if we sort of circle back to this concept of hybrid working as we come out of the pan pandemic, um, how well do you think banks fared um, during the pandemic and particularly in terms of their regulatory and operational challenges which they had to face? I think it's ex it was extremely uh, well managed. I mean, the transition from the, the normal standard way of doing things to a completely different remote one was, was perfectly executed, almost perfectly executed by everyone. I mean, the regulator was absolutely on top of operational and uh, compliance and surveillance. Uh, so the, the, the communication became very, very intense weekly. Um, and, uh, and the workforce and all of us uh, remarkably, uh, you know, we adapted to, to a different way of doing things. I think that the challenge has not been the first step, the adaptation to the new way of working. I think the real challenge is that we are struggling to find in agreement of what new normal is going to be from here. And that's where the mess starts, I think. So the challenge is more on the future than, than, than on, on fixing anything that went wrong in the past, because not much went wrong, I think. It was amazing, actually, how quickly um, the whole industry adapted almost overnight, wasn't it, to, um, you know, to that. Uh, so, yeah, very impressive. And as you say, certainly from what I experienced, it is now about what does that new norm look like? And it's probably going to take some time to try different models and different ways of working till we get to that, um, till we, till we get to that piece. I think there is absolutely no consensus emerging. I mean, I don't see it personally. I see a, a leopard skin kind of image in front of me. And then, you know, the other, you know, the other thing is that there is at the very top of the industry, there is absolutely vocal non-consensus positions. I mean, we have one of the biggest 
um, consultancy firms are saying to their 20,000 employees, you can take Friday afternoon off. And, uh, and the same, uh, at the same time, you have one of the biggest entrepreneurs in this, in this country going vocal on the social media saying that that is a joke. He defined the decision a joke. So you cannot agree on what productivity means. You cannot agree. And so that is what I think is our is where our work needs to be. Create consensus, agree that we are in a transition, uh, and that in this transition we have to experiment, which is what businesses hate to do. And we will find we will find a way out of it, I'm sure, but it will take time. So so going back to the, the talent and culture bit of this, um, how have you seen that sort of interact with this, this sort of thoughts about hybrid working? Where, where do the two sort of come together? Well, you know, there is an undeniable, uh, an undeniable advantage in introducing flexibility at, the, at every level. Of the organization and because that will allow to retain talent. I, I, I agree that. I, I agree that uh, people prefer not to commute, uh, definitely not to commute every day, that they prefer to be able to walk their dogs, that they um, are able to go and pick up uh, the kids from school. I think that that is all great stuff. But that's a very um, individualistic, ego egoistic view of, of, of living. I mean, I am an individual that is happier being not linked to a routine. But the organization is a living thing. And the organization will die if everyone will continue to think in such an individual way. There is such thing as a community of intent. There is such thing as teamwork that is creativity created in a room through conversation that uh, has, has to have the time to develop. Uh, all our Zoom calls are very transactional in, in nature. The tone of the conversation is, guys, we have half an hour. Let's discuss this and move on, right? But when you create an organization and you develop a strategy and a business together, there is togetherness and there is there is a, a rhythm of togetherness that requires uh, human interaction. So I think talent needs to be retained by increasing flexibility, but it cannot be, uh, in my view, uh, sustainable in the long term. So something has to give in terms of communication uh, that, that serious time is required in person. And we, we, we need to work with our young talent to communicate this. Uh, I think it's part of a civic society necessity. We need to, we need to communicate, we need to articulate these concepts and, and, and make them realize that society is not an individual in a screen. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? The way that employees have um, almost taken a position of power in terms yeah. of living the, the, the flexible working agenda that, that they want without you know, necessarily thinking about what's best for them, their training, their development, the organization yeah. as, as a whole. Yeah, I mean, Sally, when we were talking um, 
recently about gender and you were saying, well, sometimes people have to think about if I have my daughter, how would I behave in, in this room and stuff like that. I mean, if I had a daughter that has to start the working career, you know, uh, what would I like the behavior of people be and so on. The same thing goes with, uh, with, this, with this talent retaining necessity. I mean, if if I had my kids coming out of a grad, of a of, of a university and they need to get into a grad scheme, right? What experience do I want them to have? The grad scheme is almost like campus experience. You need to really get the culture straight, and you can only have it by osmosis. You can't have it by Zoom. So I think we all collectively need to think. If I had a young child and a young individual coming out from education needing to really have a, a chance of having a career what would i want that person to experience and i think we would get very quickly to the answer which is it cannot be me staying in my study with my computer and not having any relationship with this individual so it's all about um thinking about others yeah, and, and to, to your point earlier, it, it is about the tone from the top, the tone from the middle, the leadership that, that our, um, you know, sort of senior teams actually put into creating this, this new hybrid in, environment. So how would you assess um, that general response of banks to the shift in, in those expectations, the behaviour of employees, policy makers and and more generally, reg regulators to hybrid working. What's been your experience of that? My experience is, is one of uh, increased scrutiny, increased surveillance. Uh, we live, we work, both of us, in an industry that is highly regulated uh, in, throughout the world. It's not just in this country. Everything happens the same way in the U.S. at the moment or also in parts of Asia. So... Uh, there has been an the, the need of increased surveillance. And that has uh, triggered also some not very positive reactions, correctly so, from employees who felt all of a sudden that their online activity has, has, has been scrutinized beyond the point of uh, being comfortable. Uh, let's not forget, for example, the regulator just issued the, the Market Watch 68 note that has uh, asked very, very pointedly to all banks to um, audit the, the platforms that have been used by their traders and, and their client-facing employees all throughout the COVID and, uh, and, and see if they were using anything that was even vaguely near social media, therefore not auditable. And a lot is coming out that the answer is, yet, is yes. I mean, there has been a lot of activity going on uh, in the markets with communication channels that are not auditable, that are not recorded, and, and this creates, uh, exposes the industry to abuse, and, and we should just uh, tighten it up. But that requires surveillance, and surveillance goes against the instinct of a lot of individuals. So the, the industry and is working hard to fix it, quote-unquote, but it will require yet again more invasive surveillance from uh, from from the technology used by, by by the banks. Another example is clearly cyber. You know the the the, the amount of cyber um, vulnerabilities um, has 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 increased, 
because of, as I said, this decentralization of access. And uh, in, again, the regulator is working very, very hard doing um, you know, tests, uh, detected or undetected, attacking their own institutions to try and find out how exposed they are to this risk. But in, in, inevitably, cyber is, is going to be an area of, of vulnerability, yeah. Yeah, so um, so I agree with all of that. And, and maybe to touch upon one last topic, um, which is um, links all of this together in, in many ways, particularly the conversation around diversity, inclusion, um, culture, is the topic of sustainability. And maybe just to um, to to start with decarbonisation and then go on to culture. But regarding decarbonisation first, how would you assess how banks have responded to the challenges to date and what more do you think needs to be done? Thinking in terms of decarbonisation doesn't come natural in this sector. This has never been one of our priorities. It has never been a subject that people have been um, articulating before. So there is a lot of learning happening. Uh, in, in terms of measures, I can see absolutely every institu financial institution trying hard to um, reduce their own footprint, uh, and successfully so. But uh, in terms of uh, genuinely being able to rate their counterparts in line with the decarbonization target, um, we're still very far from, from getting to that point, honestly. Yeah, and, and then how about in terms of uh, culturally um, and from a, a DNI perspective, thinking about um, you know, the, the S part of the, the ESG debate in, in terms of um, mm. your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think again, uh, our industry tends to be a very happy operating in areas that can be quantified. <laughs> we are a number-driven industry. Therefore, I think while we uh, tend to be struggling, but we are willing to work with the climate issue because there is a lot there that you can quantify, analyze, of course, we are stretching our models to try and think about risks in 30 years term, something that for the banking industry is completely alien, but we can still operate in a familiar kind of framework. The S is, is, is troublesome because the, the S uh, is not something that you can put your finger on very, very easily. So. There is the relationship with all the stakeholders that it's something that we have been working on over the past 10 years very actively. And I think that's something that we can continue to work on and improve further. But in terms of diversity, again, we go back to what we were saying before. The industry is trying to do their best, I think, most of them. But um, we need to work with the educational sector. We need to work with the professional advisory sector and try to bring that S to the level that is acceptable to, to the world out there, to society in large, because we are, we are looked by, we are watched by, by society in large, and we need to, to find a solution to that. But it will be, it will be made of many small fragments of activity rather than in, in the in the case of climate anything 
very transparent and very clear for everyone to understand. Paula, it's a really interesting and important topic that banks need to keep at the forefront of their thoughts and, and particularly bank boards. Thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Sally.